1: Let's do this. Is that okay? It's your strong side. Yes. Oh, and there's a drum set here, too, in case I feel so inclined.
2: (laughs) That's great. Um, Can you introduce yourself real quick?
1: I'm Robert Sirota. I'm a composer. I've been composing all my adult life. And for a long period of time, I also ran a bunch of music schools.
2: Uh, And do you want to say that you're also my dad? Oh, I I am also Nadia's father. I'm your father. (laughs) So, yeah, this is Meet the Composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. And I'm hanging out with my dad.
1: Yeah, I got it. Just I have to. I have to be within range. Yeah,
2: yeah. And the music that we're listening to, by the way, uh, is his high school band. This is the Yorks from 1967. Okay, so you wrote, you know, you were in a rock band, you wrote a very successful musical in high school, you got into Yale, you got into Oberlin, Oberlin had the practice rooms, and so you're, I'm picturing sort of bright-eyed, um, melodically gifted, 17, 18-year-old goes to college, and, right. then, and then what happens? A weird thing happened.
1: So I kept writing for the theater, I wrote something called The Freshman Show, which, um... What happened was the guy who was supposed to conduct it had a family emergency, and I ended up conducting it. And it was, like, amazing. It was such a great thing to do. Um, and I remember my composition teacher didn't go to it because he wasn't interested. And my piano teacher, she said, you know, that's fine, but don't don't waste your time on that. So... What I discovered, though, as a a baby budding composer is I had this incredible lyric gift. I could write tunes. I could write tunes forever, and they were good tunes. When I went to college, I discovered that that wasn't so attractive to a lot of my teachers because some other weird thing was going on. It was like if you weren't being a constructivist composer, if the music wasn't indeed about its own structure, and its own structure wasn't complicated, then you were a pariah. You were rejected. You didn't get tenure. You didn't get a job.
2: So, you know, I grew up watching my dad struggle with his artistic identity. He wanted to write melodies, and his teachers told him over and over again, actually... That melody was dead. It was a thing of the past. And this almost crushed him. But here's the thing. The more I've talked with composers of his generation, the more I've realized that he really wasn't the only one.
3: I did feel definitely a kind of oppressive blanket being thrown over my potential creativity. This
4: is the direction which is acceptable, and that direction that you want to go to is not acceptable? For a
3: long time, I really just floundered around. I mean, I... I I, uh, almost stopped composing after Harvard because...
4: I didn't see the point in it. I feel like there were people who were telling me. And I didn't know what I really wanted to um,
5: do.
0: Not to find out who I was. The mainstream has become totally regressive. You know, creating fat brains.
5: Uh, These are the stupid ages.
0: Expression is a word which I would like to shove off the
4: table. And they were doing it in this very kind of aggressively... When I hear the word style, I just see a field of sheep. Curmudgeon-like way.
3: The classic question, what's wrong with this picture? There's just something not right about it. And that's tragic.
1: When you asked me to think about this stuff, it was like, you know, what did you do in the war, Daddy? Although I wasn't a soldier, but this was my culture war.
0: This is Meet the Composer.
2: Today's episode of the show is about a particularly nasty moment for composers, and it's a moment that we are just on the other side of, culturally. If you're not already aware of the conflict in the 20th century between tonal composers and atonal composers, I think it must sound insane. To hear that creative people were antagonizing each other, belittling each other, calling each other names, and most pervasively and insidiously, saying incredibly shitty things about one another behind each other's backs. It's like the 20th century was when classical music went through middle school. And it was brutal. So the kind of crux of this argument was a classic one. Left brain versus right brain, head versus heart, chromaticism versus melodicism. And there are a lot of ways to talk about this conflict, and each one is frustratingly imperfect. But to oversimplify, this kind of thing... ...versus this kind of thing. So, this conflict... It actually had the tenor of like a Facebook political argument or something. There's a lot of people saying a lot of nasty things, but this was, you know, before social media. So these arguments were happening at concerts, in the classroom, and in the paper. In 1988, the New York Times published an article titled, Charles Warrenin's Bleak View of the Future. Charles Warrenin is a very successful and very good chromatic composer who, in the 1980s, was alarmed at where he saw classical music heading. He thought it was evolving into pandering entertainment, designed to sell instead of to challenge. The
5: mainstream has become totally regressive. Whether it is a mainstream of appeal to uh, sort of the world of pop music in some sense, or the yearning for the for the success and notoriety or fame, if you call it that, the celebrity that uh, practitioners in popular music, if they're successful, can achieve, or a kind of nostalgia for a past which cannot be recovered.
2: So, David Lang, a tonal composer can't resist the urge to comment. And because it was 1988, he wrote a letter to the editor of the Times called Body Count.
4: We had just started banging on a can, which was, so we were in a polemical kind of mood. And I think he felt that, um, that this world that he was helping to build, you know, this, this, um, the thousand-year Reich of modernist music, was crumbling. He basically had nothing good to say about anyone else.
2: So, how did this fight begin? How did Mr. Warren in school take control of the music scene in the 1960s? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at three big factors. And the first factor was Adolf Hitler.
4: People had looked at the horrors of World War II and decided that an excess of emotion had led to a huge amount of trouble.
1: Tonality represented the corruption of European culture, overblown European culture that had caused the Holocaust and terrible things. And that we had to kind of reinvent ourselves in order to be modern people and to figure out who we are in a post-World War II world.
4: And only young, rational People could build a more scientific and more secure world.
2: I get it. I remember the night before Trump's inauguration, he held a concert at the Lincoln Memorial, and there was a version of the Battle Hymn of the Republic that stirred me at a moment I did not want to be stirred. Music is powerful. So that's one element of the story. The second factor, as is often the case, was an economic one. After the war, the arts, and classical music specifically, were funded in large part by American universities.
6: practice rooms in a jumbled jangle of private
2: After the war,
4: uh, somehow, uh, the American university system accepted classical music and composition as one
7: of its core classes that would be taught there. Things were really driven into the academic environment, I think, by the economic conditions of World War II and post-war.
2: That's Lewis Nielsen.
7: There was really no other place to go. State support was never that great.
4: Into these um, new opportunities came all the hottest young composers who were learning the most exciting and up-to-date theories from all the new
7: people who had studied in Europe.
6: And I have seen hands busy with test tube, beaker and burner, profoundly engaged in making... If, if
7: you are in an academic environment with the tenure system, musicians are having to justify themselves to chemists and uh, sociologists and so forth and having to do things that can be verified in order to get tenure and promotion in an academic institution. Um, this notion of empirical proof of validity as a kind of form of objective academic truth.
5: I was constantly told that we were on the verge or beginning a totally new era of music which was going to be completely different and totally disjunct from the music of the past. The
1: only music that was useful and effective was music that tried to reinvent music.
2: Starting music from scratch, uh, which was a charming way of putting it. So the musical structures these composers were using, these complex, rigorous sets of circumstances, they were, for the most part, descended from Arnold Schoenberg's 12-tone system. Schoenberg took the 12 notes of the chromatic scale and decided that, in his new system, a piece would be based on an ordering of all 12 pitches which didn't have any duplicates. So instead of basing a work on chords, stacks of triads that lean towards a tonic, a piece is built from a kind of cell, that can then be inverted, put backwards, or stacked on top of itself. And that brings us to the third factor in this music's mid-century cultural domination. It can be really extraordinary. Astonishing, unexpected, beautiful, crystalline music. It was an entirely new system and a fantastically plastic medium able to take on the perspectives of the dozens of creative individuals who wrote in it.
4: You know, we have discovered something so beautiful in music that only a few people have the education to see it. You know, we are like scientists. You know, we, we are the people who have the electron microscopes, and we um, can prove that this thing on this microscopic level is beautiful. And, you know, they're right they are absolutely right so I think the problem came with that second part of the equation because we have found this beautiful thing we can prove at least to ourselves that what other people find beautiful is not really beautiful
7: I know a lot of students felt the pressure. Um, if you're going to work at the Ford factory, but you prefer Chevys, you could get into trouble. To me, that's rather artificial. To me, that's almost intellectual cowardice. I mean if you're going to be a composer, you've got to be able to accept rebukes. You've got to be able to move forward. And you've got to be able to be yourself. If you, if you can't resist... The pressures of trends, if all of your mind is taken up with how am I going to get academic tenure, how am I going to get promoted, how am I going to make headway in the world of contemporary music, almost from a business model, then you have no business being a composer in the first place.
5: In my long years of teaching, I found... The real problem wasn't that students came with, with um, some kind of idea that it was crude and needed some help in shaping and that they didn't have the skill or the experience to do something with. It was that they had no idea what they wanted to do. They had a vague yearning to write music. And I found often that, that they were far too ready to do what I told them. Almost never did I ever encounter a truly independent mind who wanted to fight with me.
1: You know, when you're a kid, you want to please your teachers, so you write what you think they want to hear. Um, I remember my father, <laughs> my father saying to me, when I played something of, for him that I'd just written at Harvard, I remember him saying to me, and it would kill you to write a tune every once in a while? Because he knew that that's what I was good at. It was interesting to him that I wasn't doing that. And, of course, it was very frustrating for me to hear him say things like that because he was my dad, you know. But it was a kind of test of character which,
4: which I failed for a long time. But I, I actually think that's cruel. You know, as an educator and as somebody who has spent a huge amount of time trying to build opportunities for young musicians, to me that's the biggest problem with the world that I I grew up in is, I feel like there were people who were telling me not to to find out who I was, not to explore what I was interested in, not to go where I wanted to go. And they were doing it in this very kind of aggressively curmudgeon-like way.
1: What was in my head was that the music wasn't meaningful. The music wasn't meaningful that I was writing because it wasn't genuine. And the music I wanted to write wouldn't be meaningful because it wasn't
7: valid.
2: When we come back who do you write your music for? Stay tuned. At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently through sound, With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Find us online at q2music.org.
6: influences coming in from Motown. Junior Walker did a tune uh, called Shotgun.
2: That's the composer Steve Reich.
6: An interesting thing about Shotgun was it had a bass line in my bum. It never, ever changes. <laughs> you know, there's no B, there's no release. So, I mean, it built up a kind of tension because there was no release. And uh, Bob Dylan, the first uh, electric album, bringing it all back home, I ain't going to work on Maggie Swam no more, is basically tonic. And then there's a fast turnaround, or five went back to the tonic. So harmonic stasis is in the air. John Coltrane's coming at you, Motown's coming at you, Bob Dylan's coming at you, Balinese gamelan's coming at you. It's just the opposite of what's going on Basically, German Romanticism had reached a dead end. It had reached its manner, John Adams said, it reached its mannerist phase. And it's so complicated that you hear the pitter patter of Little Pete every time it's played in the concert hall.
2: So, in the 1960s, while universities are fostering composers who write music so rigorous and complex that its practitioners are being compared to astrophysicists, there's this release. Steve Reich, along with Philip Glass and a few other guys, was one of the early minimalists. People who took music and stripped it down to a bare-bones collection of pulses and chords. It was pretty much the polar opposite of what was going on in universities. It was tonal, it had a steady pulse, and it was, shockingly, static. If I had never been
6: born, somebody would come along with a broom and say, This place is a mess. It needs to be cleaned up.
2: These guys did not have access to the concert halls and academic venues that the other guys had. Instead, they're playing in galleries and loft spaces for audiences filled with visual artists, dancers, jazz musicians, and performance artists. This scene evolved despite universities and conservatories, and as a result, it was really pretty cut off from the rest of the classical music world. So on a given night in 1960-whatever, Steve Reich's ensemble could be performing violin phase in an unheated industrial loft in Tribeca, while a new Elliott Carter piece was being premiered at Columbia University, only like nine miles away, physically so close to each other, but artistically, worlds apart. What makes a successful piece of music, of chromatic music?
5: Well, the same thing that that, that I would say that any kind of, uh, any composition within the Western tradition, that is to say a successful narrative structure, something that goes from one place to another. I know that that, uh, we all know that certain musics uh, and certain composers of the relatively recent past and of the present too in different ways want to get rid of that idea or or get rid of it uh, by either endless repetition or immobility or uh, whatever it may be. Well, that's fine, Uh, but it doesn't interest me, and it seems to me that it also... Does not, um, does not really have much to do with the world in which we live, in which we do have beginnings and endings, and we do have uh, a narrative. A Life itself is a narrative, after all, and we're not suspended in some kind of uh, permanent state of oscillation. Uh, I, don't find that, I don't find that rewarding or interesting, and I want my art to do not, not exactly what life does, to do better at it, not worse.
3: Right from the start, you know, I was kind of banging my tin cup against the bars
2: of the cell. That's composer John Adams. You know,
3: the extreme rigor of of early minimalism and trying to create something that had more unpredictability. And then right around the early 90s, I became somewhat dissatisfied with some aspects of, of minimalism, my own and my colleagues, um, partly because I felt that the music was kind of always chipper, <laughs> that it, it was great for certain modes of expressing human experience, you know, particularly meditative states or the kind of bouncy, happy quality you get in a, many Steve Reich pieces. And, you know, the ideal came because I was working on this opera, The Death of Klinghoffer. I just felt a need to find a language that was capable of the darker aspects of human expression and uh, even of violence. You know, the question of do I write for an audience or not is is one that composers always get asked. I do write with an awareness of the audience because I want what I'm saying to be accessible. I think if a person labors over a work all the time and the energy and the blood, sweat and tears that goes into creating a new piece of music, you really do. Deep down inside, want people to understand it and and to be able to access it.
7: We in this country really want to be liked. You know, everybody's got to be fine just the way they are, in a special snowflake, um, tragically. You know, I feel that that's limiting. I'm not of the opinion that some of that is good for the audience. I don't think it's necessarily good artistically. That's just my opinion. If you could bring Richard Nixon, George Wallace, and Ronald Reagan back to life and, and have a piece of mind played and it made them genuinely angry, I think I'd be pretty satisfied with that. Um, but I would also like them in my audience, those three, if they would actually come up and talk to me afterwards.
4: You actually do get to choose as a composer um, how big your audience is. You can say, uh, I'm writing a piece. Like, like a, an all-night piece that I'm going to perform just for whoever shows up in my dorm, you know. And, you know, there are only going to be like four or five people who, who want to hear that. It's totally okay for you to define the target audience of your work as being very small. And it's also very okay to decide the target audience of your work as a billion people or everyone in Yankee Stadium or every single living thing on the planet or all the trees in the forest. Or I mean, you get to decide what the audience is for your work. The second part of that is then you have to actually make sure that the doorway you build into the musical experience is large enough to welcome all those people that you invited in. I think the problem for modernism, at least in my experience, was that it found something very beautiful and on the one hand said, it's so beautiful that only 10 people can see it. But then it looked at all the other institutions and said, well, well, how come the orchestras aren't playing it? you know, well, you didn't build an orchestra-sized doorway. You didn't build an audience for this. You know, you didn't build the right invitation to the right people so that they will come in and feel um, like they are welcome into this. They actually built something which said, we are proud of the fact that we have to spend our entire lives studying this. That's totally fine. It's totally legitimate. And again, you know, there's great music that's made in that vein. The problem is... Telling people who are in one audience that they don't have the education to appreciate this, and that's why they should appreciate it.
2: After the break, expression, algorithms, and Bach versus Bach. Splitting Adams, the new podcast album for Meet the Composer and Alarm Will Sound, is now available. The album features podcast commentary from Nadia Sirota and the sound design you've come to recognize from MTC, alongside complete performances of John Adams' Chamber Symphony and Son of Chamber Symphony. Splitting Adams is available on iTunes, Bandcamp, or wherever you get your music.
0: I don't express truth in my music. I don't express anything, basically.
2: Okay, so that's Brian Ferneyhough.
0: Expression is a word which I would like to shove off the table.
2: And Brian is a composer who writes maybe the most difficult to execute scores of all time. Imagine you're singing a part, and in that part you have to divide a beat up into five pieces – and then divide three of those five pieces into 17 pieces, but then only sing the third and eighth of those 17 pieces on two notes that are in the opposite parts of your vocal range. That would kind of simulate how you have to execute about 1.5 seconds of a Fernie how piece, which in total is like 15 minutes long. His music is really hard.
0: I saw a video uh, on YouTube the other day of a parrot that was being fed um, broccoli in a a tin container. And he was cursing and taking out the broccoli and ripping it up and throwing the tin container off the table because he doesn't like broccoli. And I don't like expression. It doesn't mean that I don't like the things associated, generally in our minds, with expression. I'm just saying that the word expression itself is so, ideologized that it's basically rubbish, and um, it's better not to use it. And it's better to think of something else and use other several other words rather than one word.
2: What would you? What other words would you use in, in lieu of expression?
0: Well, uh, uh, expression assumes there is something in the world or in the music which I am pointing to and indexing and laying in front of the listener on a slide or to put under a microscope. And I don't do that. I, um, if there is something outside the music that I want to express, I will express it outside the music. I write poetry and, you know, I do lots of things.
2: Um, are there any sort of echoes of, of your musical practice in, in your poetry?
0: <laughs> uh, yes, I think my music is, my, my poetry is very atonal. Is it? <laughs> it uh generally, I, I adhere to the idea that, uh, that because we use language or words, which generally come in sentence form and paragraph form, we can fight against that and, and create some sort of non tonal dissonential relationship on the local level. I write poetry which uses made-up words. I write poetry which uses words from 13 or 14 different languages in the same piece. I use very standard techniques of creating, sort of manneristic techniques of creating poetic form, algorithms, if you like. I do want to produce poetry which um, staggers along, as it were, You feel the time dimension in the words, in the way the words are formed, and the way one word falls or doesn't fall through the safety net of another.
2: Okay, so Brian just mentioned algorithm. And if I'm being honest, I've always found the idea of algorithmic composition off-putting. I think I had the image of like putting six pitches into a computer and having it spit out a full orchestral score or something. To me, algorithm and composition was akin to saying music written by a computer, which, as it turns out, is bullshit. I was wrong.
0: the algorithmic procedures that I use are based upon um, teasing out things that I observe in music in general, that if I have a fractal relationship of four values within one measure which relates to four measures in the piece, um, I do not expect you to hear that. What I expect is that there will be um, some sense of analogous causality or of... Um, uh, 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 in something things resemble one another which don't resemble one another in the first place. Uh, music and art in general are very much like punning in that respect. A lot of what we perceive as expression in music is based upon sort of the surprise or astonishment which arises um, when something reveals itself as actually quite close to something else.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually really never thought about this. I mean, it seems like with under these parameters and, and definitions, you could apply this to you know Bach easily or
0: something. It, it- oh, you can! Yes, indeed, and I have done so. <laughs> if you take Bach's two-part inventions, um, and you look at the relationship of, of rhythm to harmonic rhythm. Um, We see that harmonic rhythm is consistently changing with respect to rhythmic rhythm. Rhythmic rhythm stays more or less the same all the way through the piece, constrained by imitation and other rules of that sort. But when you look to see how often the harmony changes, you find that it's consistently increasing up to a certain point in the piece. So it starts off as, what, um, one harmony every two measures and ends up maybe as one harmony every beat. So, yes, if I can deal with those things and see them and um, overlay them in some way, I'm not suggesting that I'm doing anything which hasn't been done in music before. I'm suggesting that at a certain point in musical history it was necessary to separate these things out and look at the whole relationship of meaning and material.
4: You know, it's interesting because I, I you know, so much of my music is now choral, and because of that I'm dealing with all these religious issues about the history of choral music and you know, and Jesus, etc. And obviously, you know, I'm not a, a Jesus guy. So, um, so I I think a lot about Bach. And I think what you really get as an audience member listening to this music is how much he believes in Jesus. And I think that's why that music works. You know, that's why it's passionate. It's not because the point of it is to convince us that Jesus is great. The whole point of the B Minor Mass or the St. Matthew Passion is to show us how powerfully committed he is and how important that belief is to him. So when you get to that level of listening, it doesn't matter what he believes in. What matters is that you're in the presence of someone who has found a reason to live. And if that person can find a reason to live, I can find a reason to live, even if it's a completely different reason. I think the goal um, for composing, and maybe this is like a utopian goal or something, but I think the goal is to have everybody feel the same thing. At least what I tell myself now in my pieces, because I'm so um, relentlessly obsessed with this idea of trying to be honest with myself, that if I can really find something in the piece which I believe in completely, that other people will believe it too. It's my obligation to help everyone understand why I am so passionate about what I am passionate about. You know, like I have to give the instruction to the player in the easiest possible way that it is to believe the same thing that I believe, or at least to see why I believe it. I need to give the experience to the audience in the most compelling way so that the audience will understand why I believe it.
2: Music is kind of a mystery. The way it moves us is kind of a mystery. So whenever we come up with some way to analyze or dissect music that we think has some kind of intrinsic value, when that yields something tangible, it's exciting. We want to hold on to it. We want to make our own music with it. Humans are different from each other. That's the best thing and the most difficult thing about existing so, when we find commonality, it can be exhilarating. But when we think differently from each other, that is also exhilarating. I love that Lang and Fernie Howe can both use Bach to illustrate what it is they're trying to do. For Fernie Howe, it's about elegantly unraveling algorithmic structures. And for Lang, it's about feeling the emotional depth of Bach's passionate belief. And they're both right. And can you imagine how boring life would be if we all thought exactly the same way? Art can reveal things in us that we've never parsed out before. And it can also show us things about each other that have never occurred to us.
4: When I realized, you know, actually, I have the power to decide when I am quiet, when I am loud... When I am meditative, when I am aggressive, you know, um, then it puts a huge responsibility on me to examine what I feel and to examine what's essential to me. And then I started thinking, you know, that's actually what music is. It's the tool that you use to figure out who you are.
7: I think students need to try all kinds of things. And you're always you're always going to wear pants that are too big for you and shoes that are too small on occasion. And that's good. That's There's nothing wrong with that. And the student phase, the time it takes to sort of reach a point where you really feel like you're saying what you want to say, can take decades. The tradition is long, it's difficult, it's complicated. Knowing who you are is long and complicated and, and difficult. And I think that the period of time of of maturation artistically is, can be quite long. And it's not based upon how much you know necessarily, but really how much, how much you can really reach inside yourself and access those things.
1: The truth is you can write whatever you want, and if, if you're talented, eventually something good will happen. And what I should have been doing, which I wasn't doing at that time, was just writing a lot, a lot, a lot of music since then I've written a lot of music and I figured out which of these things to pull out of my bag of tricks now.
4: I think the hardest thing about life is being honest with yourself about anything actually i I, I think I mean I, I really think that these are not musical issues or compositional issues. I think they're really human issues. I think what happens in music sometimes is you build something and then you are so um nervous about. Whether or not the thing you did will um, will hold up, that you have to protect it, and that kind of protection is, um, you know, kind of the road to being dishonest with yourself. I, re- I really think that's the that's the whole point. You know, I, th- I think you you write music because it's a way of figuring out who you are and the point of figuring out who you are, I would think is to be better at who you are, is to know more about who you are so you can be better about being, you know, a good person and do more of the good things and fewer of the bad things, you know. But I think that's true of everything, you know. I think, you know, as a parent, I try to be a better parent every day. I am constantly aware of how I fail. You know, I try to be a better friend to my friends every day. I have to be open to the idea that I am not as good a friend as I could be. How can I be a better friend? If I were a writer, I am sure I would be using writing as a tool to try to figure out how to be more honest with myself. And I'm sure if I were a plumber, I would be trying to figure out how to be a better plumber.
2: Hey guys, before we take off, I just want to say a couple things. We made this show about a very crazy, dense, contentious topic in Western classical music, and we made it through the lens of my particular upbringing. We didn't talk about Europe. We didn't even really talk about the West Coast, for that matter. So we'd love you guys to continue this conversation. What do you think? What did we mess up? What did we get right? You can comment on Twitter. We're at Meet the Composer with the hashtag mtc fight club okay now for the credits links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash
4: meet the composer this episode of meet the composer was produced by nadia sirota mead bernard alex overington and john hanrahan with help from Hannes brown carolyn chung elliot forrest and noriko okabe our executive producer is alex ambrose Thanks to our guests, Robert Sirota, David Lang, Charles Warrenan, Brian Furniho, Steve Reich, John Adams, and Louis Nielsen. And to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 3 Kickstarter supporters including Ken Nielsen,
0: Stanton Champion, Robert and Victoria Sirota, Alana Stone, and Paul Eldrenkamp.